Hello and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts and practitioners, including our colleagues at Tax Banter, Web Martin Consulting and Tax Ed, to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter, and your host of today's podcast. It's great to see more people discovering Tax Yak. Our latest stats show that Tax Yak is now being heard across Australia, but we've now also got listeners in New Zealand, the United States, Denmark, Spain, Sweden, the United Kingdom, the Philippines, Europe generally, India, and the Maldives. So welcome to our global listeners. Today I'm joined by Arthur Athanasiou, partner at Thomson Gear. Arthur is an accredited tax law specialist, author, conference presenter, and commentator on taxation. Today, we're going to have a yak about the proposed changes to Div 7A. Arthur, welcome to Tax Yak. Thank you, Robin. All right, well, this has been a long time in the making. I'm going back over a period of the last six years. So let me just set the scene and then we'll have a chat about uh, what we can expect from the government's proposed changes next year. The 18th of May 2012 is where this began. And it was when the then Labor government commissioned a review by the Board of Taxation to review the existing provisions in Div 7A and to determine whether any improvements were needed. After a couple of interim reports, the Board provided its report to the government in November of 2014. The report was not publicly released until June of 2015. And for the first time, we saw the 15 recommendations made by the Board but there still was no government response until the budget in May of 2016. And it was then that the government announced that they proposed to amend Div 7A with effect from 1 July 18. Now at that point, just over two years seemed plenty of time to be able to get draft legislation out for comment, consult, bills through parliament. But in two years, nothing happened. And it became pretty clear by the budget this year that the government had to delay the start date. So in this year's budget, in May, the government announced they would defer the start date to 1 July 2019. And with that end, the Treasury has now released a discussion paper. It's titled a a consultation paper on the 22nd of October this year. 28 pages setting out its proposed idea for what Div 7A should look like from the 1st of July 2019. So just before we go into the technical aspects of that paper, Let's have a chat about the, the time frame and all this. Sure. Consultations have now closed. Yes. And in fact, Taxbanter has uh, put in a submission, as have a number of the other professional bodies and, and larger firms. So we've got a month till Christmas. Your expectation that we'd see draft legislation this side of Christmas? Uh, absolutely not. Um, I'd like to think we'll see something probably in the first quarter of next year. So January's a write-off. Oh, certainly. Um, I think probably March, April, May, somewhere in there. Okay, but we now need to highlight Yes, the the budget has been brought forward due to the calling of the election. Yes. So the election must be held with the upper, uh, half the Senate, I should say, half the Senate and the House of of Reps. The House of Reps doesn't have to go till November, but more than likely they'll hold a, a, a general election by the middle of May. Yes. The budget will now be the 2nd of April. Yes. So the likelihood with just 10 sitting days ahead of the budget in the new year that they can get draft legislation out for comment, submissions back, process that, draft a bill into Parliament and out through the Senate, very unlikely. The cynic in me says uh, two things. First of all, no one really believed that they could actually get the numbers 
either in the Senate or in the lower house to actually get this legislation through when we ultimately saw it as a bill. So even if we get a bill, they may not have the numbers to get through anyway. And, and that's why it, it I think, um, makes it more apparent as to why you had these deferred starting dates of 2020, 2021 to get the system in order. Um, it's not just a case of getting the profession ready and taxpayers ready. It's also a case of actually getting the legislation passed ultimately through a functioning government at one point in time in the future. Do you think it's possible for this to start 1 July 19 if we don't have legislation in place by then? In other words, could it be put in place retrospectively back to 1 July 19? And that's my fear. My fear is that um, by about November or December, we'll have legislation with effect from six months earlier. And uh, another fear that I have is that it will deviate in some ways, some material ways, to what's been proposed in the consultation paper. So things like, for example, just your, your pre-16 um, December 2009 UPEs, that really wasn't mentioned, mentioned in the consultation paper. Um, and I suspect that it wasn't an oversight. And having said that, however, I don't think there's going to be any form of grandfathering. Um, and I think that we're going to get to a system of what it should have been right from the word go. And we're going back 21 years ago here. Yes. And I think that put together, sorry, put to one side all of the technicalities. It's a really, really simple framework. And that is that if you have a private company and you extract an economic benefit out of it, You've got to put it back and you've got to put it back with interest. And that should be the entirety of the framework. Or it should be a deemed dividend. Indeed. In yeah. other words, it's quite simple. It's a one-way street. Take it out, pay tax on it, get on with life. Um, and you can. I, I think that's where it's all heading towards. Well, if you think about the guiding principles that the board talked about in their original report, yes. they spoke of... Div 7A being all about extracting value out of a company where the funds were taxed at a company rate and yes. used for a private purpose. Yes. That's what Div 7A should be about. Correct. And that should really be it. And I think that that's where it's all heading towards. So that's why, for example, all of the seven-year loans and 25-year loans and your post-UPEs are all getting melded back into a loan for the purpose of the new 10-year rule. But more importantly... Um, the system is also going to try and impede people from extracting in, uh, economic benefits out of private companies. And I'm ignoring trust with UPEs just for the time being. I'm just really trying to confine it to something really simple and as a simple model. Um, so if you're going to basically say, right, take it out, put it back and get penalised with interest, and we might get, for example, legislation which denies a deductibility for interest even if it was for the purpose of producing accessible income, then you'll, you'll, you start to see that a simpler framework where basically you take it out, you correct it as quickly as possible, put it back in and get on with life, and hopefully that will act as a deterrent for future generations to stop thinking about private companies as private money boxes. But it's my money. How often do we hear this? Indeed, indeed. And 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 look, as taxpayers get more sophisticated and uh, more learned um, and as the ATO gets better and better and better and more real time, um, I can see a day when um, you Div 7A will hardly be even thought about simply because people will just leave it alone or if they want to take it out, don't make it a deemed dividend, make it an actual dividend. 
All right, so why don't we get into some of the detail of the board's uh, recommendations and how this has been adopted or not adopted, as the case may be, by Treasury in their consultation paper. So we'll start with the proposition that they're going to go with a 10-year loan model. So this will replace the seven-year loan model. Now, in principle, I don't have and, and 25, and 25. And 25, and I'll get to the 25-year short. And pre-4 December. So I don't in principle have an issue <laughs> with seven years going to 10. That's yes. neither here nor there. Yeah. First issue is they're talking about written loan agreements no longer being necessary, a formal yes. drafted written loan agreement. Yes. Now, from my discussions with a lot of accountants, a lot of them are not running off to lawyers to get lawyers to draft them. They're actually doing it themselves or they're getting a pro forma from somewhere. So what's your view on whether a, a formal written loan agreement is needed? Is this a good idea? Is it going to make it simpler? And oh, I should add that yes. whilst we don't need a formal written loan agreement under this new model, you'd still need written evidence Correct. of the fact the loan was made, the amount of the loan, mm. the interest rate, the term, the parties. Mm. Yeah, well, if you think about it, um, you would understand why originally uh, Treasury and the policymakers wanted a written loan agreement because in order for there to be a debtor-creditor relationship, you need to have a good thing, which is a debtor expressing an intention to actually repay a loan. Now, if you think about it, pre-4 December 97 loans that are still there today sort of suggests to me that the debtor probably never had an intention to repay the loan, particularly if it hasn't moved in the last 21 years. So it suggests to me that you know, your pre-4 December 97 loans and the balance sheet are effectively actual dividends that are just suspended there in time. But if we think about the um, uh, written loan agreement requirements, provided there is sufficient evidence to show that someone has borrowed money, that there is at least some intention of a repayment, um, I think that should be sufficient. And if you think about it, um, a lot of the times when people got caught up with Division 7A, um, and in particular before 109RB came into existence um, when it did nearly 10 years ago. Um, the reason why most people got caught up with Division 7A was because either no Section 109N written loan agreement or one that was so badly drafted that it just was void for, for want of a better term, which is why you then ha started having corporate constitutions being amended to include contractual terms. Uh, that problem. Correct, correct. Mm. And I suspect that um, given that there'll be this change to Section 109N by abolishing it, you probably go back and get the uh, constitutions amended again to remove that relevant requirement if it's not necessary. Look, just to add to the discussion, what we've included in our submission to Treasury is that we like the idea of not having a formal written loan agreement, but we still think that the information should be captured. And we've recommended that the tax office should make available a template, which could be downloaded, just a one-pager, and it would summarise the, the key data which could be populated by the tax agent or by a taxpayer. I don't necessarily disagree as a concept, but then we start getting into things like, for example, well, what if it's not going to be just a straight 10-year loan? It might be a little bit less. Um, what, for example, would um, something that's you know not an orthodox 10-year loan, what would the terms look like? I'm also starting to think about the um, requirement that um, tax agents in particular not engaged in unregulated legal work. Yes. So a, a lot of the times when I do see written loan agreements that have been dragged down from the internet and have been signed off, I shudder because I see things which 
normal people who should have a basic grasp of the English language and communication in written English just don't seem to get, and the, the agreements are really woeful. And there are also legal issues here that account correct, not qualified correct. to do. Correct, and, and, and it shows, and it shows that someone has attempted to do something that a lawyer should have done, they haven't, so therefore you don't really have a document when everybody was luxuri- luxuriating in the, um, in the belief that they actually had complying written loan agreements. All right, the interest issue. Yes. I've got a real problem with the way they are proposing the interest should be calculated. Now, at the moment, as everyone knows, you would use a Div 7A calculator or a, a tool on the ATO website, and it calculates the minimum yearly repayments. In a very basic and simple way, yes. Yeah. What they're proposing is firstly for the principal component, it would just be straight line. You take the loan amount, divide by 10, which has its own issues about whether it would take account of an additional capital repayment, and it would seem not to. In other words, it could shorten the loan term by doing so. But the interest is really simple. So simple, in fact, that all you do is take the opening loan balance for the year and multiply by the interest rate. It doesn't take account of any loan repayments until the beginning of the next income year. Correct. Find me a bank in the world, Arthur, that would charge interest on an amount that you actually don't owe anymore. <laughs> well, let me ask you this question. Um, how about you have a quick chat about the actual interest rate itself? Absolutely. The interest rate itself is proposed to be a reserve bank rate. And when you trace it through to what they're um, going to be using as the basis, it's going to be running at uh, 8.3% at the moment. Now, who knows what that rate will be in a year or two. But basically, it's 3% higher. Correct. So it's effectively penal. If, you want to penal, if you've got an unsecured loan, could mm. you get 5.2% at a bank at the moment? Certainly not. Well, if you can, let me know because I'm yeah. happy to borrow. <laughs> You're doing well. So I do question how commercial it is at the moment in relation to the 5.2%. But yes, it is a, a penal rate being 3% higher. And, and I can think of other difficulties as well. For example, currently where we have problems with the ATO um, in terms of 109RB uh, applications, one of the things if you like, one of the products of, of any communications with the ATO under 109RB is to determine what is the relevant amount of repayments necessary in order to get you back in the position you should have been so as to afford you the discretion. And just so our listeners are aware, 109RB is, of course, the Commission's discretion to disregard yes. a deemed dividend. so it's a, it's a general discretionary power. So one of the problems that I've encountered in the past, um, and I've done many, many of these 109RB applications with the ATO, um, is that it's very difficult to actually get an agreement with the ATO about the relevant interest rate, about what if principal repayments are made through a particular period of time, what if drawdowns further occur. Um, and it's just very hard to concur with the ATO about how to properly do it. Now, the ATO has released um, a fact sheet, as you're aware, which sets out a basic model, of, again, of some drawdowns and, and how to, um, I, I think, try and implement a methodology of um, getting a, uh, a position so that you can have corrective action being affected properly. But again, it's it's not simple. The best way to do it, I think, is under the current system, is tell the ATO these are the transactions. You come you come back to us and you tell us what the correct amount should be for corrective action, and then we'll just check it off with our calculations using our spreadsheet expertise. Not, but the but the point is, but the point is, it's it's, it's a very it can be a complicated system, and if the whole point of the exercise which was why the Board of Review um, considered Division 7A in the first place, 
in 2012 is to try and reduce compliance costs. It's always a driver in everything. But haven't we got an interest calculation that's going to be simplistic beyond what's commercial? It, well, I, I, I accept simple. that. I accept that. But if, if we're going back to reduction in compliance costs, hit people hard that take economic benefits out so that they don't do it, and then all of a sudden we're getting back to a system where we should have been, and that is we've got a simple system which tells you how to do it simply. It might hurt along the way, but at least it uh, it, it uh, achieves its policy objective. I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Yes. I have not yet met one accountant yes. who has trouble calculating interest on a daily outstanding balance. So in other words, they're happy to do their current calculations and for a little bit more complexity, we're going to get a much more commercial and accurate interest outcome than simply basing it on an opening balance. And and again, Rob, we're going to be in heated agreement all day long. But let me put this to you. Why would it be so difficult for the ATO to have a tool on its website, which is effectively a safe harbour tool, which allows you to put in transactions on a daily basis and gives you the right outcome in order for this um, corrective mechanism to occur. But more importantly, uh, let's go back to basics, Rob. Um, So many times I see C returns being provided to me as part of a brief provided to me for um, Division 7A. And I look at the C return, I look at it diligently, and I look at label N. And I say that label N, I know that there's a debit balance in the balance sheet, but I don't understand why label N isn't properly completed. Label N is the loans to shareholders. And why is it that nearly every uh, software accounting package allows you to tab over the field? There's no validation error on it. So that suggests to me... And the reason for that is, yes. how can the software know whether or not there is a loan? It's self-assessment. You have to fill it in if there is one. So why wouldn't a proficient tax agent be in a position to look at the balance sheet, see the receivable, detect that it's to an associate or a shareholder, and then include that in label in? Because over the years of my training experience, yes. the accountants have all worked out there is no validation error. So therefore, and they seem to rely on that as saying, well, then that label's not compulsory. They haven't understood it is a compulsory label. <laughs> Failure completed is a false and misleading statement by omission. Correct. It is absolutely an issue. Correct. So therefore, it suggests to me that the ATO would never be in a position to know in the first place about whether or not there's a Division 7A issue. But going back to my simplified solution of having a tool that also um, effectively, if you like, supplements the disclosure requirements on the label in. So again, a whole lot of good reasons why you'd want to do it the way I'm suggesting. It wouldn't be that hard, but I suspect it won't happen. But I'm looking forward to seeing how this corrective mechanism will work, how it will be legislated, but more importantly, the other written materials and rulings that are meant to come out together with it to explain how it'll work, which means new practice statements, perhaps new determination. All right, so let's have a chat now about the seven-year loans. Yes. So the transitional arrangements will be as follows. Any seven-year loan that exists at June 30, 2019 will need to comply with the new loan model the new interest rate, but will retain their existing term. Yes. Now, my take on that is if you're four years through a seven-year loan, middle of next year, you would then have still your three years remaining. Yes. But I think they would take the closing balance at June 30, 19 and simply divide by the three remaining years. That becomes your principal component of your repayment. Yes. And then you're adding on, of course, the interest at the new rate. Yes. So... In principle, I don't have an issue with that. On a straight line basis, so your principle is basically divisible by three in yes, that example. Assuming there are three years left. Yes, and and so your interest it should be a very simple straight line calculation. It should be. Yes. 
What about those people who would prefer a 10-year loan term? In other words, are they being disadvantaged because they happen to have a seven-year loan on foot? And could they refinance into a 10-year loan without there being a problem under Div 7A? Well, I, I, yeah, that's the problem. 109R is, is the real issue there. But ultimately, if um, they were about to do that, I don't see why... Um, why it couldn't work, but ultimately, if people want a ten-year loan, perhaps they should just take out a fresh loan going forward, and then using that fresh loan to basically make the repayments for the old three-year loan. Again, wanting to step right away from Section One Hundred Nine Capital R, and then we can, um, you know, talk about it. But you are right. Look, there are these nuances, and they will be there present for at least another five years. So it'll be 20, 2025, 2030 by the time everything will have settled in, into, the, into the new frame and, and, and the 25-year loans, which we'll get to. With 109R, which allows the Commissioner to disregard a repayment if you intend to take out a similar or larger amount yes. subsequently, yes. there is an exception in 109R6. Correct. And it says you can take a seven-year loan and turn it into a 25-year loan. Yes. So we've already got that mechanism. Yes. And it's something I've actually asked Treasury. Yes. Could we use 109R6 to turn our seven-year loan into a 10-year loan without it being a problem under Div 7A? So it's a thought. It's a thought, but I suspect I'll probably um, abolish 109R, subsection 109R6. I think either that or just amend it to back to 10 years. But at the end of the day, I think just on that particular point, I think Division 7A is going to change a lot. Um, I suspect no matter how diligent Treasury is in terms of putting together a bill for Parliament, um, I suspect that um, there will be some deficiencies in the drafting. Personally, my preference is that we eliminate Division 7A entirely and we start with Division 7B with a clean sheet of paper. Division 7B, that's got yeah. a ring to it. Yeah, and not only that, but but you can have you can have Division 7A grandfather out, you know, for the next period of time so that your seven-year loans are all um, come out in, say, 2020. Because if you think about it, under uh, the um, minimum loan repayment calculations, you're going to get a different outcome than you would under the 10-year model. So, for example, you know, that means Section 109N has to change. Yes. And so I, I just hope we don't see a a really expanded Division 7A which has old rules, grandfathering and new rules in the same framework because it's just going to be very difficult to work with. All right, let's turn to 25-year loans. Yes. They will need to adopt the new interest rate from 1 July 19, but yes. broadly are exempt from the new changes until June 30 of 2021. Correct. From that date, they need to comply with the loan model. Now, it doesn't explicitly say that they are going to be grandfathered in terms of their term. So my take on it is all the 25-year loans out there, and granted there aren't a lot of them, but they do exist, they would become new 10-year loans. My issue with it is you're going to have unfair outcomes whichever of the dates the loan was entered into, which I'm going to set out as follows. Mm -hmm. If you entered into the loan more than 15 years ago, say 20 years ago, you're getting another 10 years. You could get a 30-year loan out of this. Whereas if you entered into the loan a year ago, and I've met a number of accountants who have set those up, then you're going to have that 25-year term cut short, which is going to have a, a significant impact on your cash flow because you were budgeting on repayments over 25 years and now it's over a much shorter period. So in other words, it's going to give unfair advantage to those that did the loan more than 15 years ago, and it's going to stifle the term or shorten the term for those that did it less than 15 years ago. I, I agree. I agree. But there's also other considerations like, for example, people probably wanting to um, get out of these loan arrangements as quickly as possible if they have to go to a shorter period with a higher interest rate. 
Uh, I'd also suggest that um, a lot of thought needs to be given to how securities might be being released. Because remember, these are all secured to 110% so of the face value. Correct. So um, there's going to be, um, I think, uh, um, an upswing in compliance costs, particularly with property lawyers, for getting um, securities released and uh, getting the conveyancing done to ensure that titles now no longer have any, um, um, it's whatever the property lawyers do in terms of releasing securities. But what I'm saying is that there's those things as well that um, also need to come into play. But but yeah, look, we, we haven't seen a lot of 25-year loans simply because of the up, number one, finding sufficiently unencumbered assets, or if they're encumbered, finding a primary um, lender who would give consent. Because I suspect there are a lot of 25-year loans out there that have been done without any consent or even any knowledge, but that's another story for another day. Okay. Um, but again, it's all about... Um, getting rid of that additional security compliance cost type thing, get everybody back in the same framework. So isn't the logical outcome here to grandfather these, let them see out their term and not upset these commercial arrangements that are already in place? The problem is, though, Robin, that you, you're going to have a grandfathering going out to about 2030, 2035. Yes, you would. And and again, if, if we're going to have a new system where everybody falls into line as quickly as possible, I, I understand the logic and I understand that there are going to be winners and there are going to be losers. Mm, okay. Now, the big one, the pre-4th of December 97 loans. Yes. Now, there are some big ones out there. Indeed. I came across one this week that was $3 million. I came across another that was $7 million. But I've come across not just eight-digit loans, but nine-digit loans. And these have been quarantined for over 20 years. Now, a nine-digit loan is not going to be one that's going to be funding an overseas holiday, renovating the kitchen, putting kids through private school. This is going to be working capital. This will be bricks and mortar sitting in a factory or commercial premises or funding a business. Or being linked to an an associated trust. Yes, it's not private use of funds, not for those dollars. How do you just unwind this? Because these loans are going to be financial accommodation beyond June 30, 2021. So as at that date, they will become a loan for Div 7A purposes. Then you've got three choices. Put it on a complying 10-year loan term with interest Mm. from June 30, 2021. Yeah. You can repay the whole loan in full. Yes. Or it'll be a deemed dividend. Yes. So here's the thing. If the loans have been used for the purpose of acquiring um, capital assets that have been appreciating in value, the good thing about it is it's been effectively an interest-free um, source of funding for acquiring that asset in the first place. Um, uh, it is a worry. It's a major worry. And the reason why is because... Um, a lot of people just can't accept the fact that that these amounts, which they thought they would never have to pay back, all of a sudden now have to be paid back. Um, and, and again, um, it's part of, if you like, everybody falling into line. My problem, and I've got a very specific problem, is that from, say, today until 30 June, there's a lot of people out there that are exploring the possibilities of wanting to write off those pre-4 December 97 loans and argue that there are no taxation consequences. So here's the thing. We've got a policy in the consultation paper which suggests that everything that's pre-4 December uh, 97 loans rolls in and becomes a 10-year loan. So it doesn't seem to me that the policy going forward um, is that the commissioner would simply accept a write-off of a loan um, from the balance sheet. And there are a lot of reasons why um, 
and, and a lot of ways in which the commissioner can simply say, no, I don't accept that you can have a write-off with no further tax consequence. We can talk one day about debt forgiveness, about statute bar debts, about an earlier debt forgiveness. We can talk about the 2005 practice statement, which seemed to be um, that or seemed to suggest that there'd be no active audits being undertaken, if you recall the wording. Um, but in any case, assuming the line is still on foot and the argument is they are, You'd have a distributable surplus problem up until June 30 next year anyway. Well, then we get into a more basic question, and that is how can somebody who has taken out money out of a private company and putting to one side the Corporations Act issues, um, how can someone who has just simply expressed no intention of making any form of repayment now all of a sudden say, well, I'm going to repay it. I've had 21 years to get made together. I haven't done it, so it probably is because I don't want to and I, I don't intend to repay it, which means we've probably got if you want to go back to basics, a Section 6 dividend assessable under Section 44, and we can have an argument or a discussion about fraud and evasion given the Commission an open-ended period of review to amend assessments. Mm. And I'm thinking about the penalties and I'm thinking about the shortfall interest charge, and it's just going to be a serious problem. I don't think the Commissioner would go there. That's my take on it. But I'd like to think not, but mm. it would be open. And and if you even want to go down in, in 109F4 where the Commissioner can – sorry, 109F6 where the Commissioner can treat it a debt as being forgiven at a particular point in time. So, um, again, lots of dangers, but here's the bad news, and that is that these loans have got to see the light of day and to play it safe – you would want to bring these loans on as 10-year loans from next year and so you just repay them off uh, with interest over the schedule and deal with it that way. And the 10 years would not start until 2021, so they Correct. get two years grace. Correct. Now, with the time we've got left, I'm just going to run through a number of other issues, so these will be um, some short comments on each one. UPEs. The paper sets out that a UPE rising on or after 16 December 2009 would need to be dealt with as a complying loan, otherwise it's a deemed dividend. Now, my take on that is we're losing the year's grace that we currently get. Yes. So UPE rises, the following year it becomes financial accommodation if not held on subtrust. Yes. The following year you put your line agreement in place. We'd lose that extra year. Yeah, on the now, flip. again, yeah. neither here nor there. And I think many people are dealing with these post-2009 UPEs as loans anyway. Yeah, I think everybody takes a safe option and treats them as Section 3 loans and just allows the flip to occur and then uh, gets the year's grace. But you're right, um, there's a timing disadvantage there going forward. But ultimately, I think what it'll do, it'll, it'll, force, um, it'll force the issue about distributing to corporate beneficiaries generally. I it think will. that's going to stop. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because no one really plans about getting the money out of the private company. Now, those are on subtrusts. So we've got option one, option two, option three, but generally yes. they're running seven or ten year subtrusts. Yes. There is no reference at all in this discussion paper about those arrangements. And, so, and uh, I, I suspect I suspect that because those subtrusts simply arise as an administrative um, lenience by the commissioner, they'll just simply be ignored as part of a future practice statement just to um, and it's as though they never existed and they'll just go on straight ten year loans as well. People put commercial arrangements in place. And the budget oh, absolutely. On, the, on the basis that X amount was due at this date, there was no principal due in the meantime. Absolutely. And I feel for those people that have actually bought income-producing assets as option three. Absolutely. And that's another issue that really hasn't been addressed in the consultation paper either. Agreed. Now, pre-2009 UPEs. Strangely silent. The paper just says we haven't yet decided what we're doing. So in other words, should Div 7A apply to them? Uh, look, I'd be, very, I'd be very surprised, Robin, if there was any form of grandfathering um, of anything 
And so consequently, I just think they're going to slip quietly in as being part of the framework of rolling into 10-year loans. Okay. I think it also brings into question the future of subdivisions EA and EB. Yes. Given UPEs just will become loans and won't be UPEs anymore for tax purposes. And in particular for subdivision EB, if we get rid of the proposed distributable surplus rules, um, then you probably don't even need subdivision EB. Yes. Because a lot of uh, a lot of the mischief that subdivision EB was trying to address was because you had entities without a distributable surplus. So, so again, um, yeah, look, I'd like to think that um, we have a, a lean, mean, clean Division 7A, but um, I'd like to see the end product. I'm, I'm actually looking quite forward to it. Okay. Some more issues that I need to reel off here. Self-correction mechanism. Now, we touched on this earlier in the, in the podcast. At the moment, there is a mechanism under 109RB to go and seek the Commission's discretion if there's been an honest mistake or inadvertent omission. That will remain in a a limited form, but they're finally recognising that a lot of practitioners are out there fixing up these problems themselves, and that is currently not permitted under the law. So there'll be a new self-correction mechanism, and this will allow practitioners to sit down with their clients, and if they meet certain criteria, fix it up within six months of identifying it. Yeah, but just, just to clarify that, one of the conditions, if you like, of um, obtaining relief under 109RB, if you have an honest mistake or an inadvertent omission, is also how quick you can affect some type of corrective action already before you approach the commissioner. Agreed. But um, you're right. The problem is that they only take it halfway, and then they don't go to the next half, well, and that is the commissioner, which is exactly right. Okay. So, um, and, and look, to be perfectly frank, it it also takes a lot of resources from the ATO to deal with these um, RB applications because, Robin, they're not all easy. Some are very, very difficult. I mean, the simple ones are you have UPEs that have been going on forever, and you've got to bring everything back into the fold. Pretty hard. My concern is the start date of 1 July 2019. We don't know if that's when the breach has to occur the identification of the breach or the correction of the breach or all three. So we need some further guidance on exactly what the effective start date is. The proof will be in the pudding. It will. Now, 14-year review period. This was the the bombshell in the document. There is currently a four-year amendment period for Div 7A transactions, as for most transactions. They are proposing 14 years. Yes. Now, just to give that some context, a multinational that has millions or hundreds of millions of dollars of profit shifting has just a seven-year amendment period under the transfer pricing provisions. Yes. And yet a little SME pulling money out of their private company is proposing a 14-year period of review. This seems over the top. I think too. I think also, and I think that... um I think we're just going to get a standard four-year uh, review period. I, I can't see 14 years being legislated. And if so, it'll probably be stuck somewhere in the regulations. But again, I can't see it happening. All right. There are some other amendments they're proposing, things like providing a safe harbour where there is a use of a company asset, and that would then allow a, a benchmark rate plus a 5% uplift, and I cannot see the justification for that extra 5% to, to uplift. Calculate, to calculate the value of the payment, correct. I, th- I think it's... it's, it's a private use yeah, of a company asset. It's, it's exorbitant. Okay. They've also got some suggested improvements to look at the interaction of FBT and Div 7A, interposed entity rule, and also the timing of some of these deemed dividends. So in all of this, there's a fair bit going on. It's going yes. to be really interesting to see what the final form of this legislation looks like. Um, yeah. And I'm not confident we're going to see it this side of the election. And the problem is it's very difficult for practitioners to even start thinking about advising because no one knows where this is all going to end up anyway. Absolutely. Right, like Arthur, thank you very much for your, your comments and your insights on this. Thank um, you. We was, wait with interest what happens next It's truly a pleasure. And as I said before, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this all pans out. Thank you. Thank you, Arthur.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Taxiac. If you're enjoying our podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you are, because it will help to improve the profile of the show. If you'd like to connect with us on social media and let us know what you think or suggest future topics or speakers, you'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. We look forward to you joining us next time.